Whoever's ready, whoever's ready. Hey, listen, some of you have expressed interest already in being a part of the recovery in Houston. And uh, I just want to let you know that we've been in contact with some of our friends through Faith Walking down in Houston, and they are preparing for groups to come down and to do some work. So if you were involved in anything after Katrina, um, anybody go down after Katrina? There's a few of us that went down, yeah, and then some folks went down. Uh, Houston had another storm at some point. I forget the name of it. I don't, I don't remember. Um, but there was another group that went down after that. But uh, what this would look like is basically a straight-up work trip. And so if you're interested in taking some time off, I don't have any dates for you yet. What we're going to do is we, we just want to know if you're interested. So um, it could be um, anywhere from uh, four to seven-day kind of a thing, um, depending on how we get down there. And uh, basically, you're going to be helping people gut their homes. Uh, which has, um, we had a story when we were in Katrina, uh, we, we worked on one home for uh, a few days, and it was just a powerful time with the homeowners um, and just helping them. I mean, it was just a huge help to get everything out to the street, cutting drywall off, all that kind of stuff. So if you like dem demolition, uh, <laughs> Uh, this is this is your thing. So if you're interested, I mean, this is just a preliminary thing. I just want to kind of get um, names and and emails uh, on the connection card today. If you want to write Houston on it, and then give us your name and your email address. And what we're going to do is try to see who's interested and if we want to form a team around you. Does that sound good? And here's the deal. I mean, you guys are a little quiet today. I'm not. I'm going to give you introverts a break. We're not going to say hi to each other. We're just going to stare at each other awkwardly from across the room, okay? So introverts unite this morning. Um, and so, but I'm, I'm counting on you later with coffee and donuts to talk to people. Is that cool? But you have to be a little bit more alive this morning. Are we a little alive? Come on, it's football season. Some of you are like, who cares? All right. Uh, well, welcome. If you're new to Restoration, we're glad you're here. Uh, we've got free coffee you can drink today and free coffee that you can buy um, later on this week. So grab that at the info table. Um, and let me, just, uh, let me just start us off with a little bit of prayer. So if you have a Bible, open to Luke 24. Let me pray. God, uh, be with us this morning as we, as we uh, dig into what it looks like to read the scriptures well and how we do that and how we do that so it changes us and it shapes us. Um, so God, open our eyes, open our hearts this morning like you've done so many times before. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, brief recap if you have not been with us. Uh, we have been in a six-week series on the Bible. And uh, some of you are like, well, I hope you're talking about the Bible. Um, really, what we're doing is talking about how to read the Bible well, how to engage it well. Uh, the first week, we asked the question, um, why the Bible? And we, we talked about this idea that we actually have a problem with the Bible. Many of us have take issue with it, or we don't even read it. And we talked about how important it is because Jesus actually loved the Scriptures. And if we're going to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did in the world, it's actually kind of important that we take the Scriptures in the same light as he did. The next week we talked about, um, well, we kind of threw out this phrase that we worked off of, that the Bible is a library of writings, okay? It's not one book, it's many books. It's a library of writings, 
both human and divine, okay? Human authors, God-inspired the same time. And uh, it's okay, baby. <laughs> By the way, that's the newest addition to our church right there. So, uh, little Ollie. So, um, so, both human and divine that together tell a unified story that point to Jesus. Okay? That's, that was the second week. The third week, we had some crazy, it was crazy week. It was Dan and Randy walking us through different passages of Scripture and how we read them wrong and how sometimes we put on these lenses and we read Scripture through a, a certain way that's actually a wrong way to read it. Um, and so if you missed that, I would encourage you to catch the podcast. Um, and we talked about uh, what the Bible is for, and that's to know who God is, to know who we are, and how we relate to each other. And then last week, we talked about what it looks like to be a community that reads Scripture together, to be a community that have our hearts burn within us as God speaks to us through Scripture. So we're finishing everything today. And hopefully what this will do is propel you, not only as you join in with us and we read the New Testament over eight weeks, but also how, how we kind of attack scripture and look at scripture together um, as a church. And so our next series coming up, I'm not going to even tell you what it is, because I feel if I tell you what it is, you won't come. I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, if you want things to get um, interesting around here, um, join us the next few weeks. Um, and I'm, that's it. That's all I'm telling you. Um, Okay, Luke 24. We ready? Who's ready? Four people, 12. All right, cool. Here we go. Luke 24. Last week, we talked about this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. You're probably sick of hearing about it. Um, and how this morning's going to go, I'm, I'm not talking for as long as normal. So you're all, yeah. So we're going to nerd out a little bit. We have a little bit of implications, and then we're going to hear some stories. Cool? Everybody's like, let's get to stories. Can't. We've got to nerd out first. Luke 24. Um, this is the road to Emmaus. There's two guys. Uh, do you remember last week? Um, let me just start off in verse 13. It says this. Now that same day, this is resurrection day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there, there in these days? And then Jesus asks, what things? You know, we talked last week about how interesting that was because um, it's kind of like they're asking, were you, were you under a rock this last week? Did you miss everything? I mean, this is the whole thing in the city is going on, and you missed it. And then, and then he, they tell him everything that they know, and then he stops them, and he says in verse 25, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he starts to unpack everything. He starts to weave all these puzzles together. And then in verse 30, this is where it's really fun because 
He's with them. Um, They're breaking bread together. They're having dinner together. And Jesus took the bread, it says, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. And this is what they remember. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Like like that, that moment, they just thought to themselves, and they reflected on what that was like. They appear, they, they show up uh, back in Jerusalem. Remember, said they went back to their community. They went back to their community again, and they're, and they're hanging out with their people. And then Jesus shows up, and he appears to them, and he has this conversation with them. And then in verse 44, it goes like this. He says, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. And listen, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He opened their minds, all of them right there. So Cleopas and his buddy, who we don't know his name, were like, dude, double whammy, right? Like they got their mind open twice, right? Um, and so there's this moment here, and Jesus mentions this, and, and, and then Luke mentions twice. He mentions the words, the scriptures, okay? And then Jesus calls it the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So remember a few weeks ago when I said that the Bible actually never calls itself the Bible? Actually, the word Bible is unbiblical. That's pretty interesting, right? Um, So it never calls itself the Bible and never actually calls itself the Word of God. That's kind of like a natural, that's something we've just kind of adopted, um, and and, and that's just normal speak for us. But the word is always actually attributed to Jesus in Scripture. So, but it calls itself, especially uh, uh, like the writers of the New Testament, they call Scripture, the Old Testament, they call it the law, the prophets, the writings, things like that, or some variation of that, okay? And, and, and the, the question is, why is that? And this is a really nerdy part. This is really important for us to understand as we head in, as we try to figure out how to approach scripture, how do we read it? See, book order was super important. In fact, the reason why it was called this is because the Old Testament really, in its, in its regular, in, in the form that Jesus knew it, was in three chunks. The law, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Now, in our Bible, for instance, the Old Testament, you will read First uh, and Second Kings, okay, First and Second Chronicles, right, and 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 you'll read um, and you'll read all these different things, and you're like, wait, did I ju- I just read that, right? <laughs> like you'll read a story in, in one of them, and then you like just a little bit later you'll read it you'll read it again. You're like, what what's happening here? Well, actually, that's not how, and that's how our Bibles are set up. That's not how the Jewish scriptures were laid out. There was, there's three different parts. There's the Torah, like I said. There's the, the prophets, which is called Nevaim. And then there is the, um, the final part, which is the writings, which is the Ketuvim. Okay? And this is called the Tanakh. And I actually have a copy of the Tanakh. We're doing show and tell. And this was actually given to me by Curtis. Um, Curtis, here's the funny part. I don't, I don't know. This is hilarious. I just noticed this today. 
there's somebody's uh, bat mitzvah program in here, which was like, so I totally, like, it got jacked by somebody who got this at their bat mitzvah. So anyhow, so maybe we need to give it back to her name's Sydney, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, okay, so maybe she didn't want it. I don't know. So here's how this, this is the coolest thing. So this is, uh, Hebrew is read right to left. So you have to open this in other, in other direction. And I'm going to pass this around, but it's really amazing how this is laid out. It's totally different than, than your Bible or mine. I'm going to just start over here, Randy. And so if you want to pass this around and look at it. Um, so these three different parts, is three different main chunks of Scripture. And here's why this is really important, okay? Uh, you're probably going, I don't care. Um, but yeah, you do. Um, here's, here's why you care. Because in each section of Scripture, there's a, there's a seam between each one. And scholars believe um, there's actually people that are so nerdy with this stuff, they're called canonical scholars, meaning they study how and why Scripture was put together the way it was, the canon of Scripture. And there's some really nerdy people out there. Now, they believe that there was an editor at work in how the Old Testament came together. For instance, in Deuteronomy, Moses, we all believe Moses was the author of Deuteronomy, which is this curious line at the end of Deuteronomy. And Moses, if he's the author, says this, Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. <laughs> so, which is an interesting phrase if you are the most humble man that ever lived, right? So, so some people believe that Ezra, at the end of Deuteronomy, actually added these last little pieces editorially of Moses. And that, and that Ezra did this when Ezra comes back and brings the people back to Jerusalem and rebuilds, rebuilds the temple and begins. There's this beautiful scene where they read the law again and they all stand for it, for the whole thing. And it's this wonderful, beautiful, powerful moment for the people of Israel. And we, we saw the little cartoon video last week that talked about that. But... Moses um, didn't probably write, Moses was the most humble man that ever lived, right? We believe that there was this beautiful work of art that came together, this, this, some literary mind kind of helped orchestrate kind of how this was all laid out. And canonical scholars actually believe that there's something called canonical seams. And there's two verses, two little passages that we're going to look at. This is the nerdy part, and it's almost over. Hang with me, Okay. Uh, two spots in the canon that actually are bridged from one section to the other. And I think when we read these two places, we're going to understand how we're supposed to read Scripture and, and why that's so important. Okay, so the first one is Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Throw this up there. These, these verses that I'm going to read are actually similar. Okay, so Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says, Be strong and courageous. Some of you are familiar with this. Be careful to obey all the law my ser servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Okay. Now listen to this verse. Listen to some of the chunks of these phrases. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. What's the law? The Torah, right? Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. This is where, well, we'll get into that later. And so listen to that. So that's a seam. That's, that's between the law 
okay? And the prophets. Joshua is actually in the category of the prophets. Does that make sense? Here's the second one. Psalm 1. You guys want to look at the screen. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Look at this line right here, verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a stream planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Very similar to Joshua chapter 1. And canonical scholars believe that these are seams that are trying to remind the people of Israel of how they're supposed to ingest Scripture, like how this is supposed to work in their life, how they're supposed to read it, how they're supposed to chew on it and eat it. So notice these two seams. Both passages are saying the exact same thing. Now I'm going to just group them down really quick. The first one it says to do, the first thing it says to do is delight in Scripture, to delight in it. Now, to take pleasure in it, to draw joy from it, that's what it means to delight. Sadly, I'll just be honest, this is not how you and I mostly feel about the Bible. When we think about the Bible, it's not like, oh man, can't wait. I, I delight in it. I find joy in it. It's sometimes for us, it has become uh, something we've kind of kind of glommed onto our life that we have to read this thing out some sort of guilt trip or to self-discipline exercise or, or maybe to manipulate God in some way or another. That's kind of how we use scripture. I'll just be honest, that's me sometimes. But what does it look like to delight in it, to find joy in it? You ever been around little kids that don't like certain foods and you just don't even know what's going on? May you just like, how come you don't like that? You know, with kids, uh, every flavor and every texture is guilty until proven innocent, right? I mean, take, for instance, salsa. For years, I was trying to get my son to eat salsa. You're going to love it. I'm not touching it. You're going to love it. I mean, from a little kid, all the way, finally, he's like, I don't know, 12 years old. We're at somebody's house. He's starving. He sees a bowl of chips and a bowl of salsa, and he tries it for the first time, okay? And then it was like, oh, we need to leave you two alone for a while, <laughs> right? And here's the thing. It was paste picante sauce. <laughs> but he was just like, what is this magical thing I'm eating for the first time in my life? And I'm like, where have you been, right? Like, I knew you would find some, some joy. So we bought him this huge two-gallon thing of it. Um, find joy in this salsa for the first time. Now, for some of us, okay, this is not a slam. But that's kind of how it is. Some of you have a childlike immaturity about how you feel about the Bible. You haven't developed the palate yet for Scripture. And that's one of the things we're hoping that changes because of this, that some of you have yet to acquire the taste of it. Because here's the deal, it competes with a lot of things. It's not hard to acquire a taste for football or for Netflix or for podcasts or, you know, all these things. But to read and to chew on Scripture and to let it change your palate, 
You know, a number of years ago, Angela, I was, I was a part of a workout group that decided to do a, 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 a bet, and we all did paleo for six weeks. And I've told some of you this story, but it changed my life. I mean, I ate horribly. I don't eat great, great right now, but you should have seen how I used to eat. In fact, the first two days of this paleo challenge, I mean, there's no sugar, no carbs, nothing processed. Angela can tell you the story, but I, I felt like I needed to go to the hospital. Like, I literally, my body was detoxing from all the sugars. And not just like I drank Coke all the time or whatever, but like breads that turn into sugars, that kind of, like your body is just like angry. And it's a horrible feeling. You're detoxing. Okay, And it's changed the way I eat. I eat much differently now. The things that I liked to eat before, I don't eat as much now, or I don't have a craving for anymore. Does that make sense? So at a gut level, your desires begin to change. Okay, When you start to read scripture, you get to the spot where you begin to start to delight a little bit more and ache for it a little bit more. So you begin to discipline yourself to eat less of one thing and to eat more of something else. Does that make sense? So this idea of delight is all throughout these two seams in scripture, really important places. Second one it says is meditation. Now this is a buzzword right now in our culture. And for some of us, it's a very controversial word here in the church. Here's what I don't mean. There is a massive difference between Eastern meditation and Jewish meditation, okay? Eastern meditation is all about emptying your mind, okay, and looking inward to yourself. So um, I saw a yoga studio bumper sticker the other day that said, everything you need is inside yourself. And I'm like, I just need to stretch more. That's just me. I just, I mean, if you know me, you're like, yeah, you do need to stretch more. Hebrew meditation is different. Hebrew meditation is filling your mind with thoughts of God, okay, and from God in the scriptures. See the difference? And so when, when the scriptures say meditate, uh, meditate in scripture, the, the word meditate is actually this word dagah, which is actually the same word that Isaiah used when a lion growls over its meal. How cool is that? That, that this idea of chewing, like, like if you, anybody have a dog that loves their bone? And they get, they get with that bone and they're just like, and there's like this like growl going and they're just like totally, it's like Keelan and salsa, right? And they're just like totally them in the bone, right? Just chewing it and tasting it and savoring it and ingesting it. That is the word for meditation. What a cool picture, right? So uh, when we hear the Caleb word of the day, that's really not chewing. You know, that's cool. That's nice. But if you think that's really the end story of this, you, there's so much more you're missing. And so acquiring a taste, you start to chew on it, you start to growl with it, you try to ingest it a little bit. Listen to this quote from Eugene Peterson. He's actually got a book on the Bible called Eat This Book. Okay, I would encourage you to pick it up. He has a quote from it. He says, Christians feed on Scripture, 
Holy Scripture nourishes the whole community, the holy community, as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts, listen to this, of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company with the Son. How beautiful is that? So it's this idea, there's a story, there's a, an account in John, um, in Revelation, in John, I think it's Revelation 10, where the angel rolls up the scroll and makes John eat it. And many scholars believe this, this idea of, of, of symbolic of scripture being consumed, right, by John. Psalm 119, it talks about uh, that it's sweet as honey, Right? that scripture sweet as honey, and yet John talks about how it was bitter also to his stomach. Um, there's this idea in our lives that, that it's sweet and we take it in, but there's also things that there's a gap in our lives and it gives us a little bit of real indigestion, you know, like life indigestion because of the gap in our lives. So the problem with many of us is we've been trained to read scripture to look for inspiration only. You're like, oh man, what inspiration can I get? And we've been trained in such a way that we, if we don't get inspiration, we just move on. Uh, that, didn't, that didn't give me anything good today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find something else. Something to pump me up. But scripture is not just to pump you up. It's also to change your life. And that's what meditation does. And the third one is obedience. All the scriptures said, uh, like this, these, both these themes said this, and, and this is, comes out of Joshua, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Do everything written in it. Live it out. See, it's not enough to read and study and know and believe. At some point, you have to live it out. Rabbis used to say that you learn it more with your feet than with your ears. So this is where it comes, learning with our feet. Um, and, it, and I don't know if you guys remember School of Rock. Remember the movie School of Rock? And Jack Black's like, you know, those who can't do, teach. And those who can't teach, teach what? Gym, right? And so this idea, and, and I know there's a lot of teachers in the room. That's not, it's not a knock on you, but there's an idea that we can know this. We can even teach it. We can believe it, but it doesn't matter if we don't do it. So I saw the other day, one of the guys in our church here posted this, this idea about being a secondhand vegetarian on Facebook. I love that, right? That's me, right? Yeah, I'm a vegetarian, secondhand vegetarian, meaning I eat things that are vegetarian, right? And so this, this idea of like, no things are good for me, but to actually do it, right? It's a whole different ballgame. So something's missing in our culture. You know, I went through four years of seminary and never once, never once did I remember a conversation about obedience. We, we looked at all these different things. We, we, we looked at scripture. We never once did a professor go, now let's talk about the obedience of this. That's not to knock them. That wasn't necessarily their job, but you see how easy it is, Right? 
Listen to this, this quote, um, again by Eugene Peterson. Obedience is the thing, he says. Living in active response to the living God, the most important question we ask of this text is not, what does this mean, but what can I obey? A simple act of obedience will open up our lives in this text far more quickly than any number of Bible studies and dictionaries and concordances. Okay, that's the huge part here. So delight, meditate, and obey. Does that make sense? Now, I want to invite, um, I'm going to just skip a little bit of my sermon, and I want to invite Gabe Hernandez up, because he's going to tell you some story about his life and how Scripture has impacted his life, and then we'll close things out. Thanks, Gabe. Thank you, sir. All right. I fell in love with the Bible almost uh, getting close to 12 years ago. And the interesting thing is that, that wasn't my first interaction with the Bible. Just like many of you in here, we all have been saturated, affected. Um, I can go down the line of... of <laughs> no, I'm going to back off on that. Um, we've all had some interaction with the Bible. I don't think anybody in this room can say that they haven't heard something one way, shape, or form. Um, and just like everyone else, I, I had this upbringing and this understanding. Uh, to give you a little bit of context of how I grew up, my grandparents on one side were Irish Catholic, and on the other side were Spanish Catholic. So I got two different forms of Catholicism that are um, trickling into my parents' lives. My 15-year-old mother got pregnant while she was attending a Catholic school, Okay. The nuns decided against what the school had said to throw her a baby shower. The school excused her because you're not supposed to do that. You're a good Catholic girl. You're not supposed to get pregnant outside of marriage. And, and so my mom would talk about it as we were growing up, that um, that was probably the only image of love of God that she had had um, because we had a very, my grandmother was very devout, but she was also very crazy. And I mean that literally. She was, um, she was on a lot of medication from when she was a kid. So I never really knew what was from God and what was from grandma. Um, I grew up and every single card I got had a prayer written in it. And every time I saw her, oh, Gabby, I'm praying for you and all this stuff. And I said, all right, Grams, that's all good. Um, so I, I was passed down this kind of belief of how I felt about God and how I felt about his word. I grew up in both houses looking at... Um, and it's just very ornate Bible, and I don't know if you guys have seen one. They're, they're, they're just huge in size. They almost don't make sense to carry around. They're one of those presentation Bibles that you have open on a little stand, and we were always taught to stay away from it because it had um, marriage certificates and death certificates and uh, announcements and pictures and just things that we weren't supposed to touch. It was, it was essentially like a, like a family album that we weren't supposed to get close to. And I remember there's a couple of times I had kind of thumbed through it on my way out the door, and it was just, it was very intimidating. I know that a lot of my, um, a lot of my interaction with the Bible before I fell in love with it was, it was a lot of good, good thinking and well wishes behind people that I'm sure wanted the best for me, but never really spent time with God to think about the direction that they were sending the people that they were coming in contact with. 
by the time by the time the Bible hit me, it was diluted through two parents who had just been told they were supposed to live a certain way. They were told they were supposed to respect and honor God, and it it was interesting. I I wrote this down. It said, um, "God was feared enough, but not enough to scare me straight. God was respected, but not enough to deserve deserve worship or adoration. God was distant." and busy with those who wanted him. But we never held back for asking something from him in severe time of need. I fell in love with the Bible in a jail cell. And uh, this is actually, um, this Bible was actually in prison with me. This has been in my life almost 12 years, and it looks like it's, it's, it's seen better days. And uh, I remember that when I fell in love with it, I, I wanted it to always be with me. Um, I've, I, I carried this everywhere. I mean, it's probably got sweat stains from me holding on to it. Um, there's a piece of kind of faded pink string in the middle that was actually um, handwoven by myself in a jail cell with one of the sheets. Um, I used it as a bookmarker during the time that... Um, the officers had um, raided our everyone's cell and basically took all our personal belongings, all our paper, all our stuff. Um, as Ryan asked me to kind of talk about this, I, I, I was surprised that I brought this Bible with me. I really thought it was left in California. And um, the last couple of weeks, I've just been holding it. I've been, I've been thinking about um, the different times that this helped me get through different parts of my life. I... While I was incarcerated, I put pictures of members of my family on it. And I was actually looking at it right now, and it got pretty sad. Um, I got told by somebody that I was desecrating the Bible for doing this. Um, my family wasn't with me at that time, and I needed, um, I just needed something visual to carry me through. A reminder of why I was choosing to pursue God um, instead of pursue the other things in life, because at that time, the Bible wasn't enough, and God wasn't enough. And I'm looking at the images on these pictures, or on this, on this Bible, and my dad's gone. Uh, my brother has divorced his wife that's on here. She's holding my nephew, who we don't get to see anymore. My sister doesn't look like that anymore. My mom doesn't look like that anymore. My nieces have been pained a lot more than the, you know, the smiles that are on their face here. And, and I open it up, and on the inside are, are a bunch of, there are a bunch of names of people that I don't even think about anymore. This wasn't just something to inspire me. This wasn't something just to get me through the day. This was a huge piece of my life. There's numbers of people in here that I wanted to stay in contact with that I could tell you right now that few are living and almost every single one of them has walked away from God. I stepped out of jail and I, I, I clutched two things to my heart very dearly. One, that I was afraid for my life because I had quit gangbanging. And this was the second thing. And if you read through this Bible with that image in mind, you're going to see that there's certain parts of the Psalms that talk about, Lord, please vindicate me from those who are chasing me. God, help me from the evil ones. God strike down the wicked. I mean, this is, this is just a pure image of what it was like to leave a very violent gang and to really be trusted in God. I stepped into a program called Shining Light, which I, I definitely accredit 
my, my, my decision to ask Christ into my life, but I got to tell you that there were some screwy things going on there that um, I remember when I first got there, they told me that, uh, and this, this was biblical was what they told me, is that you must dress your best for service. So they handed me a box of stained, musty dress clothes and said, find the best fit for you. Okay, that almost goes against what you just told me. And so I'm, I'm putting on these clothes that are oversized, that are tight, that are, that are tattered because I'm supposed to look my best. But there was clothes that I brought in that were a lot better than that, but it was, it was not presentable. If I was to go to Shining Light today dressed like this and ask to get up and speak, they'd tell me no. <laughs> One of the funniest things they told me is that uh, while everyone was dancing around and I was standing still, they said, you know what, brother, that David danced for the Lord. It's in the Bible. And so if you danced for the devil when you were lost, you should dance for Jesus now that you're saved. They said that was biblical. This is things that I had to go through. I'm not making this stuff up. This is great. Um, I was told that if there was sin in my life, that God would not hear my prayers. Absolutely unbiblical. <laughs> oh, my God. And then the, here's the greatest one, which this is going to get us into a lot of trouble. But uh, the gift of tongues was the greatest gift. And if I didn't have it, I probably wasn't saved. Can you imagine, like, I mean, just what I told you. I, I, I grew up with this crazy context of what the Bible was and who God was. I step out of prison knowing two things, and, and one of the things was holding on to this and, and pressing forward in who God is and walking into this scenario and, and thinking, everything these people are telling me is not inside of here. Part of the reason I decided to go to Bible college is because if I was ever going to preach, if I was ever going to fulfill what God had called me to do, I wanted to spend time in this. I wanted to, I wanted to have someone that had some sanity to teach me this. And I, I go into this Free Will Baptist school because I felt like God took me there. And I'm not bashing anybody. I'm, I'm not calling out names of denominations to bash anybody. I'm just sharing my life. And I remember walking into this school, and I think they just didn't know what to do with me. I was 11 months out of prison. I was still very, uh, I, was, I was an interesting person. I remember, um, <laughs> I remember threatening to stab one of the students with a screwdriver after he had made fun of me one time. So I had a lot of salvation to kind of grow through. I had a lot of stuff going on in my life, man. And I was reading through the Word, and I was like, man, I need to find a place where it says I could stab this guy so I could use it as an excuse. But one of the fundamental beliefs of this place was that you weren't allowed to dance. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I just came from a biblical context, a church that said that if I dance for the devil, I should dance for Jesus. But now I'm in a whole other place where I'm learning about the Word, and they're telling me that I can't dance. So much so that when we attended my friend's wedding and they did the first dance with the daughter and, and the dad, that these 18 people that were, that were free will Baptists got up and walked out. I mean, they were there to celebrate the joining of two people, and I remember watching them walk out, and I wanted to chase them out in the parking lot and say, what the hell is your problem? Probably would have been my problem. I heard the other one is that, you know, if you're ever with a girl, you need to have like a Bible width between you. <laughs> if you were ever sitting next to somebody and you weren't married and they were of the opposite sex, that you, you had to have at least a Bible width between you. So you know I sat like that, right? <laughs> okay, I know I'm just mocking some things, but I mean, think about what that does to somebody. Think about where, where these biblical beliefs are and how much time I spent 
searching the scriptures to debunk stupid things. When I, I said, you know what, I don't have time for this. I'm just going to accept it because I already don't fit in. It wasn't long after that, I graduated and I moved in with the Church of God, and I remember that they were telling me, yeah, we're all about grace, brother. We're all about the Holy Spirit, man. We're all about, um, you know, all about the oneness of community, and, and we invite you in regardless of your background or your beliefs. But by the way, if you're going to serve here, we need 50 letters of recommendation. <laughs> I'm not going to say they said they were somewhere in the Bible, but they said, uh, no, I'm not going to tell you what they said. Um, I actually was, was preaching there on a regular basis. And um, because I was an adjunct preacher or a, a guest speaker, even though that was my home church, I never really caught all the, the fire that was happening on Monday when pastor would come into work the next day. And uh, he didn't tell me until years later, he goes, you should see some of the emails I get after you preach. So maybe one day I will. Well, I ended up becoming the senior pastor, uh, interim pastor, of, of that church for about eight months, and I did get to see some of the emails. And my favorite was that before I was allowed to take on that position was that um, I needed to grow hair to cover the tattoo on the back of my head. This was somebody who, like, I mean, just every time I talked to her, just poured Jesus out, just loved on me and told me how great it was that God had redeemed me and that there was so much grace abounding and all this, da 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 But if I was to be leading her, I had to grow hair. All, all biblical stuff. They all have biblical backing for this stuff. And I, like I said, I can go on and on and on about this stuff. But um, the hardest part about it is it still hasn't stopped. No matter how much I try to serve God, no matter how much I profess that I love God, no matter how much I try to walk in the way, I'm, I'm never going to make anybody happy. But um, I'm still being told about the preferences of people and not about what Scripture says. I'm honestly to a point where it's like, I'm just going to tell somebody, you know what, <laughs> can you say screw you to somebody? Is this something proper? <laughs> I want to just say, you know what, man, stop freaking, stop trying to tear me down. If you really have a rebuke, if you really have a concern, if you really have something that God is telling you about me, then do what the Bible says and, and call me out on it. You know, it's like, it, it's the hardest thing, hardest thing I've ever had to go through. I invested, you know, I invested seven years of my life studying the Word, five years in Bible college and two years of seminary, and, and I, I, did that, I did that for me so that I can be grounded in Scripture, so that I could, I could study the Word of God, and I, I could not continue to be a detriment to the Word of God, but I could actually help people grow in it. And one of the things that stuck with me the most, and I'm, I'm going to seem kind of hypocritical saying this, is like, because I hate cliches, is that, um, I'm going to end on this, is that you may be the only Bible that people get to read. And by that, what I mean, what, what you are absorbing and what you are professing and what you are acting out to believe about the Word of God and about the God that you serve are affecting people every single day because they're reading you. They're reading the way that you respond. They're reading the way that you engage or disengage with them. They're reading you. And you're affecting the next generation of people and making it actually making it harder for people to teach the Word of God in the right way. Although I've been taught different ways and, and I've tried to figure everything out and I've been pushed down by people's preferences, I, I want to 
I want to just share these few things. I've had some great interactions with people in my life that I probably never would have been able to talk with if I allowed my preferences to be what they came in contact with. One of my favorite stories is I was sitting in Chicago actually trying to woo Kim when she denied me a cup of coffee. I was sitting in Chicago hanging out, and I ended up sitting next to an atheist. Um, he immediately told me he was an atheist because he looked at my tattoos, and um, he said, uh, I suppose all those mean something, which opened up the door for me to share my testimony. <laughs> um, I shared my testimony with, the, um, with just the passion that God has given me, with... Um, Man, just, just the love of, of the understanding of, of being forgiven and being redeemed and being able to take all my garbage in my life and be able to encourage somebody towards Christ. And he said some of the most powerful words I'd ever heard in my life. As I waited for his response, Mr. Atheist, who was you know, ready to attack me, he said, there's nothing I can say that can contend with what you just told me. And he got up and walked away sad. Um, I remember turning around, and there was, a, there was a group of believers behind me, and I, I may have said an F word. I go, can you effing believe that? Like, I just, I just did it out with an atheist, you know what I mean? And like, yeah, we were back there praying with, with you and stuff. And I was like, should I chase him down? She goes, no, nah, you know, just, just let him go. I already did what I could. Um, but I think because I have a pretty good, pretty good biblical base and a pretty good um, just flow of how much I love God and I want to engage people and I don't want to tell them everything they're doing wrong. I've had some great conversations, and a few of the things that I've heard that encourage me to keep going forward to God is one of my buddies told me one day, he said, you know what, if I was ever to believe in God, it would be because of you. I had another guy tell me, he said, you know what, man, the one thing I love about you, Gabe, is I can throw anything at you about how I feel about the Bible, about how I hate God, about how this and that. He goes, I can throw anything at you, and you never flinch, of course, because I don't wear my preferences on my sleeves. I just want to encourage with you, you with this as we, as we pray and start to close up is what are your actions saying? What are your responses saying about God and about his word? How are we miscommunicating to people who God is by what's been miscommunicated to us and when are we going to start to do the hard work? When are we going to start to dig down deep and ask ourselves, is that a true, fundamental, biblical Jesus belief, or is this just something somebody told me with good intentions?